Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we are doing our last Bond film of this year, A View to a Kill. An investigation of a horse racing scam leads 007 to a mad industrialist who plans to create a worldwide microchip monopoly by destroying California's Silicon Valley. Cool. This movie is dumb. I didn't think it was that dumb. I kind of dug it, to be perfectly honest. I, I'm trying, like, I'm having a hard time figuring out exactly why I don't like this film, but I feel like a good chunk of it is the same reason why I don't like Diamonds Are Forever. I can tell Roger Moore is over it. I can feel it from the production. This isn't the movie we wanted to make. This isn't what we want to be doing. It's interesting you say that because I think you're probably right, but I didn't care as much about that. I think he still brings a requisite enough charm that despite some lackluster performances from some, Mm -hmm. really plays well off of some other bigger actors in this movie. This feels like they took a page out of Never Say Never Again and like, oh, that movie had a lot of bigger names. We should be doing that here. We'll talk about that with cast, but I... I think that was a big part of what made this movie kind of good if it caught you in the right way. It's got good people in it, so that's great. But that is a very distinct difference of this Eon production as opposed to the previous films. This is going to be an interesting episode, I think. Okay. The budget for this film was $30 million. Okay. We're still staying like roughly in the same purview. US, it made a little over $50 million. Worldwide, it made around $153 million okay. total. So, you know, still doing good for a Bond film. Its writers are Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson. Interesting tidbit that I didn't realize here. Michael Wilson, the producer and writer with a lot of these, is also Albert Broccoli's stepson. Oh, okay. So a little bit of nepotism that didn't work out terribly. That's not a little nepotism. That's just straight up nepotism. I know. But hey, look, he's produced all the newer Bond films, too. So... Mm-hmm. He's been a part of this franchise ever since marrying in. Yeah. At least he's got some talent for it. You know. This is the movie where he gets his first co-producer credit. This is basically a remake of Goldfinger. There are lots of elements that are similar. Uh, I can see that, yeah. You've got a mad wealthy industrialist who is trying to take over some sort of resource. Mm -hmm. There is a rehash element, but I will say what they didn't do was completely plagiarized the story Mm -hmm. they took the basic plot structure and unlike something like for your eyes only where it just feels like we've seen this before Mm -hmm. and it's boring they took what they'd already done and said how can we make it relevant for now they did do that but it was still boring Mm. it was still boring it wasn't boring for me it was boring for me oh that's sad it, it was. Was there something specific that bored you about it? I felt like there was too much exposition. And a lot of the stuff with Grace Jones and Christopher Walken's characters, whose names I didn't even really learn, just felt like, one, well, this is icky, but also, well, I don't need this. I don't care. Did you actually get why they were the way they were? Kind in that explaining scene with General Gogol? No. Because at the racetrack, that explains everything. Gogol is coming and reveals that they were part of these secret experiments. Yeah, no, I just don't care. <laughs> I just don't 
care. But you kind of have to care about that if you're going to get why they are the way they are. I feel like Kubrick rules. <laughs> By any context, who cares? I don't think the context was that hard. It's, I mean, it's not. Really, all it meant, just... all, all it meant was he's in cahoots with this doctor who's juicing these horses and oh the side effect is they're fucking psychopaths yeah no i get that and at that point i actually latched on to that because from that point on i really was like cool i get zorin he makes a lot of sense now this movie didn't make me care at all see it it got me okay weird silicon valley was michael wilson's idea okay and the first draft was real wild it had zorin changing the course of halley's comet to destroy the valley. That was deemed too fantastical, so they went for the San Andreas fault flooding approach, which isn't a bad idea. It's, again, similar to Goldfinger. We're going to irradiate Fort Knox. Mm -hmm. They can't get the gold. Now it's ours. Yeah. And we own the value of the gold because that's all that really matters. Yep. This is pretty similar. We're going to flood Silicon Valley. Nobody has it. Now we have a cartel. No, it's all right. You just need somebody mad enough to kill that many people. To, to do it. Uh-huh. Our director, again, John Glenn. Mm. I'm going to give him this one credit. There is a distinctive style to this movie and Octopussy. Yes. That is very much getting established by by the time we're watching this. I did. Re they, they did a lot of. They gave dropped good little hints that paid off later. Like the butterfly thing. When you see the figure, I instantly knew it was Grace Jones. I knew. Because she has a very distinct hairstyle. But it wasn't actually Grace Jones just yet. I know. And also, but they, they did a good job of making you maybe notice it, but also not. Just be like, oh, okay, who are you? Okay, that's what's happening. Oh, oh no. So I get that. And then the whole when she kills the guy in the car. That was great. I was like, ooh, we haven't done that type of thing here. There's something more immediate and violent in the style that he's using. He's using 80s action style. Exactly. Well, also like adding suspense and tension. But he'll also throw in every once in a while those big long shots mm -hmm. and those kind of epic sweeping things. Well, and this is the first time I felt that there was ever any suspense or tension in a Bond film. Really? Not even in, like, From Russia With Love? Not really. See, I've, there, I've got some tension there, in those early ones. There was tension in Goldfinger. Yeah. But... Maybe this, not from the style of directing. It came from the writing. No, but this is where I felt like, oh, there are some, like, stakes. It feels like there are stakes. You know, something else I'm thinking about is I'm thinking back to Goldeneye. Okay. And how it looked. Oh. Yeah. And there is a lot of similarities in how Goldeneye looks... Mm -hmm. And those sorts of narrow focused, mm -hmm. compressed style of looking through a hallway and stuff. And there's a lot of that mm -hmm. camera angles in this yeah. movie. I'm really noticing that. And it's so it's very much a foreshadowing to what's to come with the Brosnan films before they got way overbloated. Well, and see, I have not seen those films since the 20 years since they came out. So I. I'm kind of mad that we have to wait a whole year to get to them. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen them either for that long, but it did make such an impression on me that I'm able to register mm -hmm. some of those visual cues. I got nothing. I, I have more to pull from mentally from the video game because my brother played that constantly because it was awesome. All right. There's no trivia on the director. We get to our first cast member, Sir Roger Moore as James Bond. At 57 years old. 
Yeah, he feels it. He's too old for this. Yeah. There were some critics' reviews that were like, I'm going to give him credit. He looks trimmer and more in shape than he has before. Yep. But on the other hand, most of the complaints from critics, and I think this may be where you got caught up, mm-hmm. is that his action sequences looked terrible. Because either it's incredibly obvious that it isn't him, or if it is him, it's so lazy because he can't do that type of stuff. I don't think he ever could. We saw it very briefly in Live and Let Die. When we had the fight scene in that, that felt very Sean Connery, really, in that fight sequence. But they never really put him in that position. Maybe in that sort of grand war scene in Spy Who Loved Me. But again, that's a long shot. You don't have to see Mm -hmm. this in close fighting. Something we talked about with Never Say Never Again. We got that in that movie. Yeah, we covered Never Say Never Again for our Patreon as one of our exclusives. Since it is not an Eon production, but it is a part of the oeuvre of Bond. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you want to hear us talk about that, you can go join our Patreon. Yeah, uh, I can see how people are turned off by that. To me, what drew me in wasn't him. It was other people. Mm -hmm. And I will say, there are occasional moments where the spark comes in, but he is done. I just don't think it's as bad as Diamonds Are Forever when it was, I hate this and I'm showing it to you. This is better than Diamonds Are Forever. He still wants to do it. He just doesn't have the same charm that he had before. It's just not no, playing he's, anymore. He's over it. And the script they gave him was crap. And then I look at, when you do look at Never Say Never Again, where they purposely made it about Bond being an aging, having been retired secret agent. And then we cut over to this, where we have Roger Moore, who's actually older than Sean Connery. And they're still trying to pretend like he's the same James Bond. Same, and they're, they're trying to pretend that Money Penny is still like just hot to trot for him and all this stuff. And it's like, this is not good. It just doesn't feel it, right anymore. They're trying to play the same notes and it doesn't work. It could, but it, not with this writing. Roger Moore stated he definitely decided to end after this movie when he found out that Tanya Roberts, his Bond girl's... Mm-hmm mother was younger than him yeah <laughs> I, think I, I like it i like that he's a self-aware man be like nope i'm too I'm, old for i'm this. done broccoli said that he didn't intend to bring roger Moore back for this movie he yeah. really did not want to do this they wanted a younger bond and roger Moore, contrary to reports was never offered another role in the franchise okay. i mean they had all mutually agreed It was one of those things, nobody needs to have a conversation about this because we all want the same thing. I think they really wanted Timothy Dalton by this point, and I think Timothy Dalton still wouldn't sign. And so they probably finally went to Roger and were like, we know who we want, but he won't do it. Are you willing to do one more? And I assume he just said, yeah. We got a schedule to keep. We we got to make this movie. Yeah. It's a shame because Mm -hmm. I think a new Bond would have really helped the script. It would have, yes. Moore has stated this, this was his least favorite film to work on on the franchise. Yep. He hated the increased violence of this script, which I actually like. No, I it's it, it was needed. But not with him. True. Fair. But also, he felt no chemistry with Tanya Roberts whatsoever. But more importantly, he was barely on speaking terms with Grace Jones. I have heard she is a difficult woman. He hated her. Okay. Now, Grace Jones is her own woman. She plays in a completely different field. And she does not give a fuck about any of these people. She will do what she does regardless of how you feel about her. Here's what I know about Grace Jones. She did an amazing performance on Pee-wee's Christmas special. (laughs) 
that was my first introduction to Grace Jones, and that performance is amazing. She's an incredible singer, performer, yeah, model. Mo- a gorgeous model. And she has attitude for days and does not give a fuck about you or who you are. I totally respect that. Which can rub a guy like Roger Moore the wrong way. His quote was, I was horrified on the last Bond I did. Whole slews of sequences where Christopher Walken was machine gunning hundreds of people. I said, that wasn't Bond. Those weren't Bond films. It stopped being what they were all about. You didn't dwell on the blood and the brain spewing all over the place. Yeah. It's one of those things where I think he's right, but I actually like this direction. I like them moving the franchise this way. Mm -hmm. And I think it is that dichotomy of he's the wrong guy to do this. Well, and that has always been my favorite thing about the Daniel Craig portion of the franchise, because when... It was totally different look for me. And when we went into that movie and the first thing we see him do is kill a guy because he had to fulfill his requirement to become a double O agent. It was just like, oh, shit, this guy's a killer. That's his job. He is a killer. And I loved that. So I was like, oh, man, all of the bond that I've seen at this point was just like, oh, he's he's a sexy man in a tuxedo who can also murder people. But it's like, oh, no. This Bond is a fucking killer. And Connery is the only other person in the franchise who's ever felt like that. A little, a little in a couple of the movies and a, not all of them. Connery, to me, there there used to be this argument where you could say, by the time Daniel Craig ends, you full circle loop back to Connery. And uh, in, in like a weird way, there's a way to think about it in the headcanon yeah. where it's like he's refined. He's gotten a little older. He's matured. And so now that killer instinct is still definitely there and smoldering. But he's he's getting a little older and he's he's refined his agent work a little bit to to not be that way. Yeah, he's he's relying more on his gadgets and his coworkers, which is good. That's what happens when you get older. If you have an aging actor playing a role acknowledge it well there's that but there's also with the craig films there's a lot more time in between them yes we're going on three four five years between films whereas with 18 months yeah yeah a year between films sean connery of course in the midst of having done a final bond movie and this going on bond should be played by an actor 35 33 years old yes i'm too old roger's too old too yeah and more quoted I was only about 400 years too old for the part. <laughs> uh, I mean, Roger Moore just proving that he is very self-aware. He does not give a fuck. I love him. He is precious. I really hope I don't find out anything problematic about him. Well, he's don't passed me. away, so. Don't, don't tell me. Just, I know. Don't, just don't tell me. <laughs> I don't think there's anything too terrible. It's just sad because we lost him a couple of years ago. During the San Francisco filming, the stunt team was supposed to drive the fire truck, but the driver they had was too short to hit the pedals. So Roger Moore, who claimed he was a lorry driver before he had acted to pay bills, said, I'll do it. (laughs) They didn't have time to rig it for the driver, so he got in and did the stunt. That's so funny. And so Roger Moore, (laughs) I want to drive the fire truck. Fuck it. (laughs) Let me do it. (laughs) You know that's the conversation. I want to do it. And along with the criticism of the stunt doubles... It is reported that he had a bit of cosmetic surgery before filming. Oh, yeah. It's no secret Roger Moore got got plastic surgery. Well, he's definitely slimmer and a little longer in the face. (laughs) He got a facelift. Kind of looks like that. And reportedly, they had to thicken his hair every day with rumors that he wore a toupee or had his hair dyed a lighter color. 
His hair is definitely a lighter color. It's more blonde this this go round, and that's fine. Like, I think it's more that they were thickening it out than maybe. anything. But I mean, if Sean Connery can wear a toupee from day one. I don't care. I know. And even if they were coloring it, I don't think it was for aging purposes. I think it was consistency. Oh, yeah. That's a lot of reasons why yeah. they'll do that. And that's also another reason why a lot of actors and actresses will wear a wig, even if it's very similar to their hair, but so they can keep it consistent. Yeah, absolutely. Christopher Walken as Max Zorin. He's such a weird dude. Which is kind of perfect for this role. No, no, no. That's- he makes this movie for me. He really does. If he had been written better, I would have enjoyed it better. He's good because he's Christopher Walken. Yeah. Who is just a caricature of himself now, which I also kind of love because when you get to a certain point, just fucking have fun with your life. Just enjoy it. Well, he is a caricature of the stories told about himself because he had a wild, wild ass life before he became... Like an America's sweetheart type character. Before he went on SNL, basically. My first introduction to him was on the Hallmark Channel version of Sarah Plain and Tall with Glenn Close. Which, (laughs) those movies are wonderful treasures. I'm trying to think of... I mean, I I do think back to the Continental from SNL. Oh, yeah, there's that. And, of course, the, the... More cowbell. More cowbell. You can't. It's just too amazing because it's got that. And Will Ferrell. It's just just a magical thing that shouldn't be as good as it is. But both are so committed to that bit. You just can't turn away. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. And we've never mentioned him on this show before. Oh, crap. So before this, he was in The Sentinel, Annie Hall, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, Pennies from Heaven, and The Dead Zone. Um, I've seen parts of The Dead Zone. I fell asleep and got scared of it. After this, Biloxi Blues, King of New York, Batman Returns, True Romance, Wayne's World 2, Pulp Fiction, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Bosquiat, Ants, Blast from the Past, Sleepy Hollow, America's Sweethearts, Catch Me If You Can, Wedding Crashers, Click, Hairspray, and 2016's The Jungle Book. Just a few of the credits. American Sweethearts, we've mentioned, is one of my all-time favorites. He plays a crazy loon, and it's adorable in that movie. Well, we forget, like, all through the early to mid-90s, he was gangster. Yeah. He was a straight-up gangster dude in a bunch of movies. And then early 2000s, he was playing dad, goof. He was just starting to have a lot of fun. Like, I've made money. I'm good. I can just play and have do what I want. He is the first Oscar winner to appear in a Bond film. What did he win for? He won for The Deer Hunter in 1979. Okay. Which he is incredible in. That is a hard movie to watch. That is a long movie to watch. But he is fucking incredible. Yeah, I've never seen it. The most important thing here, though, is we have several who could have been betters. Most importantly, the one who wound up turning it down to do a little movie called Labyrinth. That's right, David Bowie was reportedly going to play this role. David Bowie would have been better. David Bowie would have been so much better. David Bowie and Grace Jones, yes, please. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, hold on. Too much diva in the room. There's too many divas in the room. That, 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 That would be amazing. Just Bowie as a madman. Going but after James Bond. I want Bowie is the butler. I don't care. I just want <laughs> Bowie. Uh, his statement was, I didn't want to spend five months watching my stunt double fall off cliffs. 
Fair. (laughs) He turned it down for a labyrinth. He told the producers to their face that the script was too terrible and workmanlike to work on. Which, fuck yeah, David Bowie. I mean, fuck yeah, David Bowie all day. My thing is, is like, that feels like a diva move. No, that's a David Bowie move of being completely honest and going, this script is shit. Make it better or I'm not doing this because I have so many better things I can do with my time. This is not how I'm paying my bills. So no, No, Uh, I totally get that. Like if if I'm going to carve out time out of my life to do something, it needs to be either the funnest thing I could possibly think of doing or the best thing in the world that I would be an idiot to turn down. And it. Probably would have been the former, no, no matter what. Yeah. But they needed to have more. There's not enough of Zorin. Yeah. Especially in terms of presence on screen, other than mowing people down and doing weird ass stunts, right? Yeah. There's not enough screen time for that villain to justify it. He said his directness was not received very well, and he admitted later he didn't really like Bond movies and hadn't seen one since Connery left the franchise. That's fair. So there you go. Okay, but the thing is, the script that they sent him was not enough to make him curious to talk about doing it. Zorin was based off of Sting, and I believe at one point they were going to approach him for the role. Ew. I don't know. Sting's a pretty good unhinged dude if you've ever seen Dune. He can play it really well. I have had Dune play in my dorm room. (laughs) I believe I fell asleep. But they're remaking it, so who cares? Rutger Hauer... Again, it's Rucker fucking Hauer. Of course, he'd be great. And this is a weird choice. Lee Van Cleef, who you would remember from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. He was the bad. He's the bad. If you're not getting Bowie, Christopher Walken's probably the best choice. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. He does a perfectly great job. And again, the second they clued me in on, oh, by the way, it turns them into psychopaths, I went, okay, dig it. Love his character. Now I'm watching that the entire time. And Walken really digs into that. Oh, yes. He commits. It's it's the problem that they don't give him enough time to show us that. Mm. But every time he's on screen, you get that from him. Like that scene where in there at City Hall. What have they done? You discharged her. So she and her accomplice came here to kill you. Then they set fire to the office to conceal the crime. But they were trapped in the elevator. And perished in the flames. But that means I would have to be dead. <laughs> That's rather neat, don't you think? Brilliant. I'm almost speechless with admiration. Like, yeah. that is fucked up in the perfect way. Yeah, in the, in the fun way. Tanya Roberts as Stacy Sutton. It's Donna's mom. Before this, she was the final angel in Charlie's Angels. Oh, okay. Along with the Beastmaster and Sheena. But after this, she was Midge Pinciotti in that 70s show. They were watching it, and I'm like, what? Then she's, she, there, she's a very strange voice. And you don't, well, she does in, in that 70s show. And so we're just watching, I'm like, she says a couple words, and I was just like, wait a minute. Is that the same lady who plays Donna's mom? <laughs> it was like, what? This is great. She was apparently pretty painful to work with. 
In fact, at one point, Stacy comes out of a shack wearing coveralls when they're headed into the mine. Mm -hmm. And James looks at her and says, pity you couldn't find one that fits. And then she makes this annoyed face. That was genuine. And she was pissed at him because that was an ad lib. Roger Moore was so pissed off because she refused to film the scene until the wardrobe had made her a pair of coveralls that looked good on her. Okay, she's not a well-known actress, so they're less likely to put up with diva behavior. However, what is a Bond girl's job? To be hot. And I could see her being like, you know what? I'm here. I'm doing action stuff. I need to look good. So you're going to make me look good. I agree with that. I don't know any more details, but apparently Glenn was so pissed off at working with her that he decided to keep it in the final cut of the movie. So... They must have really had a hard time with her. No, I I get that. I For mean, Roger Moore to insult you in an ad lib means you must have done something to piss someone yeah, off. Yeah, it means I'm I don't even want to deal with you. <laughs> if my job is to be eye candy, let me be eye candy. Also, I want to hear her side of the story because yeah. it's probably never been told. She really thought this was going to be a star vehicle for her. Well, and that's why she wanted to look good. She saw what had happened with Kim Basinger. Yeah, exactly. And never say never again, because Kim Basinger's career completely launched after that movie. Well, and Kim Basinger looked hot in that movie. And we talked about, it's something we mentioned in there, but she didn't want that role, but she decided, okay, fine, I'm not getting anywhere. Let me go ahead and just take this job and got the natural. And then Mm -hmm. a whole lot flowed from there. So Tanya Roberts obviously went... You know, this isn't necessarily something I want to do, but let me go ahead and do it and see if I can get something serious out of it. She's never had any type of serious theatrical film since, probably because she's kind of the weakest part of the movie. Yeah. She's not good. We do have one who could have been better. That would be Bo Derek. Okay. Yeah, totally. I mean, she, she's gotten her iconic, you know, hot lady scene in life, but she, we could have used her here. Anybody. Yeah. Like, no offense to Tanya Roberts, per se, but a wooden plank would have been just as good in terms of acting in this role. It wouldn't have been much. You know what? Denise Richards. That's... I could have been that good. (laughs) Grace Jones as Mayday. She's kind of cool. They don't give her enough time. It's the same thing. Our two bad guys. It's the Barbara Carrera thing. She got so much screen time and never say never again. And she ate it all up and it worked really well. Well, that was where they used exposition to explain our character. And it was awesome. Mayday's psychotic. She's crazy. Yes. So is Zorin. And we need so much more time with them. We needed half this movie to be them and half this movie to be Bond. And they focus so much of the screen time with Bond. And it's boring. Yeah. It's been the problem through the last half of this more stuff is yeah. we spend so much time with him and not enough time with these really interesting characters yeah. that they've built up. Yeah, which at this point, like this is number seven of the films. We know his Bond, so we don't need to spend this much time with him. Plus, it wouldn't ha- we wouldn't have as many problems with, you know, all the stunts yeah. and the bad mm-hmm. looks if we didn't have to do that much with him. Yep. We need some kind of ramp up to really buy into it when Zorin is mowing people down. Yeah, we could have kept it, you know, we could have kept Roger Moore doing more of, you know, driving my fancy car, picking up ladies at the bar. I also don't hate him driving in a car that has its roof torn off and then the back half torn off. It's pretty fucking fun. No, that's hilarious. But, you know, like start from the pretty car and then you downgrade into that. Before this, she was in Conan the Destroyer, and after this, Vamp, Straight to Hell, and Boomerang, but mostly 
left out of movies and continued to do performance work. Yeah. And performance art along with her music. And, and modeling. Jones' screams that the sparks in the mind sequence were very real. She did not know those were going to go off during the special <laughs> effects. Whoops. And Barbara Broccoli's job on this set was to collect Grace Jones every morning because she did not like early morning starts. <laughs> and Barbara said she had to learn to be very diplomatic on those car rides in. Oh, I'm sure. So she did not anger Miss Jones. Anger the Miss Jones. <laughs> anger the lady. I think she's a badass. I think she's a really good part of this movie. Just wish they'd given us more time. It's poorly executed, but that's not her fault. The final main character is Patrick McNee as Sir Godfrey Tibbet. I guess they decided Bond needed a sidekick. Well, do you recognize this gentleman? Maybe. He is an icon. This is John Steed from The Avengers, 1961 to 1969. His other big claim to fame was he was on the original run of Battlestar Galactica. He was best friends with Roger Moore, but it actually criticized the films. He preferred the books instead. Oh, okay. That's fair. He's a purist. And he was also friends with Ian Fleming and voice narration for many of the movie documentaries for home video. And he's actually really good. He's no, he's he's a fun addition. The whole butler I, dynamic oh, is super fucking. I funny. do love that because it feels like today this would be played out as Q having to pretend to be. That's how it feels. You know, we don't get enough of Q in this movie. No, and honestly. If we could have just had Q do this with Desmond Llewellyn. That would have been hilarious. Oh, my God. Hilarious. (laughs) It would have have brought so much to this movie. It would have been perfect. Just go watch the call, Q. Okay, please make Ben Schwartz pretend to be Daniel Craig's butler. I guess the problem is you can't kill him, though. It's okay. Yeah. Arpons. A few quick hits. We have Patrick Baukow as Scarpine. He did a long run on The Pretender and Carnival. Manning Redwood playing Bob Conley. He played General Miller in Never Say Never Again. We saw him just a little while ago. All right. Allison Duty as Jenny Flex. Real name, almost as bad as the fake name. Yep. She played Elsa in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Okay. Willoughby Gray playing Dr. Carl Mortner, our evil German scientist. Two years later, he would be the king in The Princess Bride. Oh, okay. We have Desmond Llewellyn, Robert Brown, Lois Maxwell, Walter Gattel, and Jeffrey Keane all in this. This is the final appearance of one Lois Maxwell as uh, Money yep. Penny. Mm-hmm. After she was told she'd be retired, she tried to convince the producers to be promoted to M. Cool. Broccoli didn't think audiences would believe Bond would take orders from a woman. Excuse me? Mr. Broccoli. You're wrong, Broccoli. I'm glad he changed his mind by 1995. Judy Dench took over in 1995 for GoldenEye, so that got thrown out the fucking window. So he died in 96, so he may have relented on that point. <laughs> or he may have not been actively involved in production anymore. Fuck you, Albert Broccoli, on that one. Judy Dench is the shit. Thank you. Lois Maxwell would have been a great M. She would have been, and she would have been great. I mean... I haven't seen the Timothy Dalton ones, but I can only assume they've been good. Her total screen time for the entire franchise was just over an hour, having delivered less than 200 words on screen. All right. I mean, she made a lot of money to do it, so okay. I'm just saying that's super impressive, the impression she makes with that little screen time in yeah. the franchise. And they at one point suggested killing her character off in the film, mm-hmm. but that, that was not a fitting end. 
Nope. We have Papillon Sue as Pan Ho, who meets him at the gates. The reason I mention her, she was in Full Metal Jacket with the very famous line. Oh. Yes. Okay. Two years later, she'd come back around on Shepperton. This was her first film appearance. Okay, wow. Dolph Lundgren as Venz, one of General Gogol's bodyguards. Of course we do. <laughs> I oh. saw it on the screen. I was like, do you know who that is? And he like, looked and he squinted. I was like, that's Dolph. Dolph was dating Grace Jones yeah. at the time. I remember learning that during our Rocky series. Looking to break into films. And so this was one of his very first film appearances. That's cool. And finally, and I didn't look to find her, but in the wharf crowd mm-hmm. is one Maude Adams. Oh, okay. She had been visiting Roger Moore on set just to say hello. And she insisted for a long time that she could not actually be seen on screen. But after some investigating, people did identify her in the background at the San Francisco wharf. All right. Our song by Duran Duran. I mean, that's another pretty big get. A View to a Kill. It's pretty good. I think it's kick ass. I really do like it. I mean, I... I'm not a huge Duran Duran fan. It's pretty good. It sets a good vibe for the film. The film doesn't live up to the song. The song's better than the movie. Yeah, you're right. Just those drums, the way the synths work. Because, like, one of the things that Bond movies do is they start the movie. It just starts. And then you have the song and this elaborate opening credit sequence. That's just what they do. And so what's cool about that is... The song helps set the stage and the mood for what we're about to watch. And most of the time, it's been kind of a, well, whatever. But this film, it gets you kind of hyped up. Like, Live and Let Die, it was great, because that was a great song. And then this one, you're kind of like, all right, okay, this is a good song. And then the movie's such a letdown after that. If it were a different Bond, it would make sense. I could see that. But, I mean, this song is better than the movie. Yeah, it is. This is the first Bond song to reach number one in the U.S. Stayed there for two weeks on a 17-week run in the charts. Okay. And it peaked at number two in the U.K. Paid off for him. Yep. Big name. A lot of people think this was a move to try to get a younger audience to Bond in a lot of ways. In fact, John Barry was not excited about doing this. Went ahead and sucked it up and then wound up using the theme throughout the movie in pretty good ways, honestly. The way he kind of orchestrates it in and sort of a more romantic tone is not bad. The way this happened was bassist John Taylor of Duran Duran approached Albert Broccoli at a party and pretty drunkenly asked, when are you going to get someone decent to do one of your theme songs? (laughs) And that kind of audacity pays off with Albert Broccoli. Our gadgets running down the list, polarizing sunglasses, a ring camera, the Zorin ID device. The Zorin desk lamp, the pre-recorded audio, just like Kananga in Live and Let Die on mm-hmm. the tape recorder. The electric shaver, the credit card electric electronic lock opener from the sharper image of all places. Of course. The snooper robotic dog, which got super creepy at the end. Why did Q have to be so creepy? He was trying to see if Bond was alive. Yeah, I know. The Zorin microchip, the walking stick with the steroids, the razor butterfly... And the bug detector. I like the racer butterfly. <laughs> On to our final trivia for Bond. The final scenes for Money, Penny, and Bond are nods to the end of the franchise with him. I like that. 
Money Penny is crying, mm-hmm. and those were actual tears on set. Mm-hmm. She was living through this Thanks. being the end. Saying goodbye. And James Bond literally throws in a towel. Yep. To be done. That's a little... On the nose. Yeah, it's a little on the nose. That's actually worse than the wink at the camera. I'll never say never again. (laughs) Because it's so defeated. I know. It's defeatist, but whatever. They were forced to add the disclaimer at the beginning of the film stating neither the name Zoran nor any such and such and such. After discovering there was a real company named Zoran Latacorpic Limited, a fashion company. Oh, all right. Filming got delayed after the 007 stage burned down during the filming of the movie Legend. They rebuilt it in four months and renamed it the Albert R. Broccoli 007 stage. That's cool. It burned down again after filming completed on Casino Royale. Diane Feinstein, then mayor of San Francisco, granted all of the permits for filming in her city as Roger Moore was her favorite Bond. Because of the city's help in filming, Broccoli insisted that the premiere be held in San Francisco as opposed to England. Well, that's nice. To split the Renault car in half, they disabled an electromagnet holding the two halves together with the fuel tank put in the front of the car. That half of that car did not have a muffler, so it was incredibly loud. Yeah, I believe that. Bond beds four women, a tie with Never Say Never Again. This movie is often credited for generating interest in snowboarding. Yeah, because when I saw that, I thought, okay, well, this must be one of the first times they've done snowboarding. The stunts were performed by Thomas Sims, one of the originators of snowboarding. Cool. Although I do love the effect of it. I hate the music. It's a dumb choice. Yeah. But I love the effect of he's not on a snowboard. He's on one of the snowmobile sleds. Yeah. Which is a really cool idea. According to Tony Mendez of Argo fame, okay. his superiors at the CIA asked about facial recognition technology after seeing this movie. When he said they don't have any of it, they demanded he start working on it. Yeah. <laughs> when James Bond outclasses your the- technological hey. thinking. Okay, go back and watch Star Trek. Some of that shit is real now, mm-hmm. and there's no way... That the people who behind designing it didn't go, yeah, that's actually a really good idea. We could probably figure that out if we throw billions of dollars at it. Let's go do it. The Pola Ivanova character that randomly comes in in the middle of the movie was actually supposed to be the return of Anya Amasova. Okay. But Barbara Bach decided she didn't want to do it. That's fair. It would have been a better thing if it was an actual cameo. None of the cast ever went to Iceland for that opening sequence, including Roger Moore. Yeah. (laughs) You can tell. Other than the rock salt shotgun, Bond never kills anyone in this movie. Lame. I know. The Eiffel Tower jump was successful on its first run. They had backup people ready to go, but they got it in the first take. Okay. The stuntman who was supposed to do the backup jump was so disappointed, he decided he was going to make his own jump. Oh. He got immediately fired because it threatened their ability to film in Paris for any of the remainder of the time. Yep. Because they got the permits to do it one time. But they did jump off the Eiffel Tower, which is kind of impressive. That's awesome. The 1962 Rolls Royce was actually owned by Albert Broccoli with a duplicate model that didn't have an engine that they could push into the lake. (laughs) The external mine sequences were filmed in Sussex when they blew up the water underneath that lake. And when the airship was flown with a dummy underneath it, police were inundated with calls to report a man hanging from a balloon. (laughs) 
We have confirmation that Roger Moore is the horniest Bond of all time. Oh, did he have sex with the most ladies? He bedded a total of 17 women, one more than Sean Connery. Yeah, that's all that matters. Just like he did one more movie than him. (laughs) San Francisco refused to allow falling stunts from the Golden Gate Bridge because of fear of copycats. Uh, Yeah. So that was all faked and created with special effects. Okay. Okay. How many glacier submarines, I guess? Nah, we did the alligator marine. That was... That's the best one that's ever been. How many psycho horses? <laughs> How many dry li- river beds? How many robo dogs? Ah, oh, there we go. How many robo dogs? How many robo dogs do we give this movie? I really enjoyed this one, honestly. This is a one and a half. I'm going to give it a two and a half. Ew, no. I think it's pretty good. I just don't care. I... Like Christopher Walken and Grace Jones are great. I like that. I do like how violent it is, but it's just, it's a boring film. And I genuinely just feel like they didn't care. Mm, I, I tuned out some of that not caring and just kind of went, well, Bond's kind of Bond, but I really like the villains in this one. I wanted more time with them. I give it a 2.5. I actually really kind of like this one compared to some of the other ones I've seen with them. I mean, it's not the worst one. As we, as we wrap this up, mm-hmm. I'm disappointed that we didn't get campier. Like, we could have kept going with the humor, with the balance of some seriousness, if we'd have kept that formula with the spy who loved me. Yeah. And just kept running with it. It could have been really good. And if we got some Bond girls worth a damn. I mean, that's what kills us. Mm -hmm. Barbara Bach is, by a long shot, still not up to par with some of the ladies we've had in this franchise. She's just not. No. But she's a stepping stone to better actresses. To play those roles and to really flesh those characters out. And we just don't get it. I just, this one's a dud for me. And definitely one of the worst ones of the series with him. I gotta ask, who's better, Connery or Moore? That's the eternal debate. I mean, objectively, there's a pretty good answer here. But I (laughs) want your vibes. George Lazenby. (laughs) (laughs) Sean Connery's better. But Roger Moore got some better stories. Connery's better, but only on the strength of two and a half movies, basically. Okay. Between From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Mm -hmm. and like the first half of Thunderball. Because like the spy who loved me is awesome. It's very good. It's very good. Moonraker as a movie is stupid, but he's awesome in it. The man with the golden gun has its moments. Exactly. So... Roger Moore had better stories and yeah. he is good in them and he plays the horny better. He does. He, does. he but, definitely does. But if we're talking about a whole package, I'm going to have to say Sean Connery. Also on the strength of Never Say Never Again, which is really Damn, good. It was like, I mean, we definitely tore it apart, but like now the more I think about it, I'm like, it was a good movie. I know. Like there's some garbage in there, but I'm glad we watched it. It's a hard choice. Yeah. And that's why it's such a good it's a it's a good debate. It's a great debate to have. Oh well, that's why we're ha- we've been having so much fun with these series because there's just so much to compare it to. Oh yeah, and like I kind of want to go watch Timothy Dalton right away, but we just we just can't. We just can't. We just can't, and we're taking a break. Yeah, we had a quick had to take a week off. We got people getting sick, and we're taking July off. Yep. We are not going to do any movies. We're going to continue with My Little Pony and finish out The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Patreon. But we're just going to take a quick month to give ourselves a little bit of time to catch up, get ahead. We're going to BronyCon in August. 
So we have a lot going on in our lives. When we come back, though. Oh, when we come back, we're very excited because we are going to do a little, a different series, but it's not going to be a director series like with Kubrick, and it's not going to be a franchise. It's going to be... The Summer of Swayze. That's right. We're going to go through some of the works of Mr. Patrick Swayze. We did ghost... We've done ghosts. And were so pleasantly surprised, I was, by that movie, that I was like, man, I have got to catch up on Patrick Swayze. Yeah, and there's there's definitely ones I haven't seen as well, so this is going to be Get hyped. Get excited for that. Go listen to our ghost episode. And just so you have this tidbit, David has never seen Dirty Dancing. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.